Construction really is a fantastic industry to be in. It's even more fun today than it used to be. We're here to celebrate equipment. We're here to celebrate construction. We're here to celebrate infrastructure. We all have fantastic technology. Our equipment's state-of-the-art. Usually the operator is a younger person who really wants to do it, who is familiar or has a gaming background. Live from Washington, D.C., it's time for a celebration of construction equipment on the National Mall. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Today just might be one of the biggest episodes ever. Today's episode is a recap of the 2023 Celebration of Construction Equipment on the National Mall, hosted by AEM, the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. You're going to hear from a ton of folks from the big names in equipment manufacturing and other organizations as we discuss topics impacting the construction industry and beyond. In fact, seeing as how this is a manufacturing-centric podcast, what struck me was just how many parallels there are between construction and manufacturing. I think you'll pick up on a lot of those today as well. So before we dive into all these interviews, I really should set the stage as to what this event was like. In May 2023, the National Mall, the area right between the Washington Monument and the U.S. Capitol Building in D.C., was covered with heavy equipment that was on display for all to see. We're talking huge earth-moving equipment from big names like Komatsu, Caterpillar, Bobcat, John Deere, Volvo, plus technology companies, construction industry organizations, you name it. And all of this was done in an effort to showcase industry innovations like alternative-powered equipment, autonomous systems, as well as exhibits focusing on workforce development, safety, and sustainable materials, just to name a few. If all this sounds familiar, it should. These are topics that we're also talking about all the time on this podcast, and we talked about them at the event as well. All these interviews were recorded live from a stage in the Capitol Mall where we interviewed construction industry leaders across 14 different panel discussions and fireside chat-style conversations. This episode is a highlight reel with some of the top insights and takeaways from those discussions. A couple other important matters before we get started. I also want to give a big thank you to AEM, the Association for Equipment Manufacturers, for putting this event on and making this episode possible. I remember when they first mentioned the idea to me, I'll be honest, I probably didn't grasp at the time how cool it would be to be podcasting from one of the most iconic locations in the United States. If you don't know AEM, well, they're all about advancing equipment manufacturers in the global marketplace. They're on a mission not only to help businesses succeed, but to build a community so that the industry as a whole can make positive, lasting change in the areas we're going to discuss today. Here are three things you can expect from these interviews. First, this whole episode should give you a vibe of the event and the type of work that the Association of Equipment Manufacturers is doing. We're going to hear new perspectives on a lot of the themes that come up on this show regularly. If you're in the manufacturing industry, there's a lot you can learn from the construction industry and vice versa. Second, we'll cover the type of collaboration that's needed between the private sector and government to make meaningful progress towards getting folks educated and trained, filling jobs, and improving infrastructure. I feel these conversations also give a solid sampling of the topics that are on the mind of folks that are in the industrial sector that are also interacting with government. 
Third, you're going to hear some things we've never talked about on this podcast before. From aggregates to the recyclability of asphalt, we'll give you a nice behind the scenes into some of the processes and technologies that are big in the construction space. As always, if you want to learn more, head to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash DC23. Again, this is just a sampling of our interviews. Make sure you're following AEM as well, where they'll be releasing all of these interviews. You can also find them at AEM.org. I will also say that there are a lot of names in this episode, more people than I've ever featured in a single episode before. So I'll be dropping names throughout the compilation so you know who's speaking. Don't worry about remembering every single person. If there's someone you want to connect with, and hey, I'd recommend connecting with all of them if you can, I have links to connect with each and every one of them over the show notes page. Again, that's manufacturinghappyhour.com slash DC23. Now that the housekeeping is out of the way, it's time to dive into our absolute barrage of interviews. Rob Schrader is our first guest here on the podcast, and he was actually our first interview at the event as well. Now, Rod has a ton of experience in this space and currently has a dual role as the chairman and CEO of Komatsu North America and the chairman of the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Rod not only kicked us off, but more than anything, he covered a few topics that are critical to the construction industry and whether you're in construction, mining, manufacturing, some other heavy industry, I'll bet these topics will resonate with you as well. I'll be back with some of my thoughts here in about six minutes, but first, let's get things started with Rod. Now, Rod, when we started this conversation, you listed a number of things that have changed in the industry over your 35-year career in this space. So if you think back on that career, what is the biggest industry evolution that sticks out? Or if, if you need to, you can name a couple. Yeah, I think the biggest is probably automation. Um, and it's, you know, when we, at least when I talk about our industry, it's, it's you, you see kind of smaller equipment here, but many of these manufacturers also build big mining tools that work in copper mines and gold mines, uh, iron ore mines across the uh, across the globe, and um, I think it was in 2004 we introduced uh, autonomous autonomous haulage trucks, and so to be able to work in remote, sometimes dangerous environments without any operators in the in the seat of the trucks, uh, and, and enable that efficiency, that productivity, that safety. And those things are going to start to come into the construction space. I don't know if we'll ever get some of these tools to be fully autonomous, but we are seeing some of the functions of the machines to be automated so that uh, it's safer for the operator. It's easier. The machines become more productive. The operator doesn't have to be as skilled as they used to be. So I think that technology is probably the biggest that I've seen. And so far in our conversation, we've been doing a lot of looking back and looking at the present, right? Now I want to ask you about your perspectives on the future. What do you think this industry is going to be like three to five years down the line? What are some of your bets? Well, you got hard questions. You know, I, th I think uh, continued in, in the next three to five years, you know, some of these things are already on the... Uh, on the verge, some of them may take a little bit longer to, to actually get into the point where they're in, into the mass market. Uh, autonomy will continue to develop. The, I would say, maybe smart machines being able to transmit data back and forth from machines to experts from the, from the factory to optimize the machine's performance, to diagnose 
problems in advance to maybe have parts available before a machine actually breaks down because the intelligence we know for the predictability of that. Uh, alternative fuel sources will be a major aspect in the next three to five years. You're, you're already seeing some here. I know we have at our booth an electric excavator, electrified battery, hydrogen fuel cell, alternative fuels will be uh, many innovations. And the artificial intelligence is going to be something that's going to definitely in the next three to five years be a major technology that makes our people more efficient, makes the machines more efficient, makes the job sites more efficient. Rod, despite these being hard questions, you're doing an excellent job providing some great answers to them. This next one's a bit, let's, let's say it's a fun question, right? It's, it's future looking, but how do we get the next generation excited about this industry? You've rattled off a lot of advancements in technologies, but let's focus on the people, particularly the folks that, that haven't gotten into this space yet. What do we do to entice them? You know, that, that may be the biggest challenge for our industry. Just in, you know, the, the latest news, right, there's 9 million job openings and unemployments at a record low level. So, so where are you going to find the people? And then, you know, our industry is competing with uh, the Microsofts and the Googles and, you know, the, the high-tech industries. And, you know, I really, that's one of the areas where here in Washington, D.C., with our state, with our federal uh, organizations, we really have to solve that that problem. And I really think it starts probably in middle school, informing parents and and children what the opportunities are in our industry and how it's changed over the last 30, 35 years and and the the safety and the technology that's that's in it. And it's, it's a marketing effort, right? We probably for many, many years kind of took that for granted because we could always find engineers, we could find marketing people, we could find technicians, um, but that reality has changed. And so we've really got to market ourselves more effectively. We've got to have incentives, you know, from the government perspective of what are the advancements in technical schools and what that career can mean for, uh, for, for people, I think is very, very important. And so, yeah, I, I'm not really probably giving you a clear answer because we don't have that solved yet, but it's a huge issue that we have to, to work together as an industry, as AEM, uh, AED is our dealer organization, AEMP, our customer organization, and there's many of those, but it's not only an issue with us as manufacturers, it's a challenge for our dealer network, it's a challenge for our customers. So it's an entire industry issue that we've got to collaborate more to, to solve this issue. And, and I'll throw one other thing out there that I think helps, and, and I'll reflect on a brief story from last night when I landed here and went for a run across the National Mall. I think stuff like this, yeah. getting this equipment out here in front of people, I can't tell you how many families, parents, kids, it was Mother's Day, so people were out and about. There were a lot of kids like looking at the equipment, climbing around the equipment. What a great way to get them even before yep. middle school yep. as well with an event like this. Yep, exactly right. So I'm going to rattle off a few of the topics that jumped out at me, and then I'll tell you why in a second. 
So Rod highlighted some of the latest evolutions in construction, such as remote operations in dangerous environments like mines. He also covered smart machines providing data to diagnose issues in advance, having parts available. We closed out with generations in the workforce. The reason I bring all these up again is that these are pretty much some of the biggest topics that come up in conversation about the manufacturing industry. Only this time we're talking about construction, but the reality is there's a lot of Venn diagram overlap facing both manufacturing and construction. And we're going to dive into one of those overlapping topics that Rod said was top of mind, workforce. Next up, we're going to be talking to some folks that represent the contractors that make up a huge part of this industry. We've got Jesse Walls with NUCA, the National Utility Contractors Association, Sean Fitzgerald with Associated Equipment Distributors, and Jim Young with the AGC, the Associated General Contractors of America. Jim's going to keep us going here with some background on the workforce situation in construction. So I'm with the AGC, and you know we've been surveying our contractors for a number of years and they're telling us today uh, for the last couple of years that the workforce challenges is their number one issue. And this is before the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic. I think it's something like 90% of our contractors tell us that they're having a problem finding skilled workers to work on their sites. And this is just not just craft workers, but this is office, salaried staff, estimators, project managers. This is across the board in our construction firms. So the workforce challenge compounded with uh, supply chain disruptions and, and material price increases is really all leading to a lot of challenges in the industry. And that's really what we're focused at AGC of America to recruit the next generation of workers to make sure the industry has the workers to rebuild America. So I think another question that's a natural segue from this one is how will changes in technology change the workforce shortages that the industry faces? And you bring points of view from technicians, from contractors. Jesse, maybe, maybe you start us off on this one. Yeah, um, I think, you know, it's kind of a, a positive, something that we were recently trying is we do concrete uh, pavement. We would take a, a four to five man crew in, in town in a, in a city street setting, and those four or five people would grade that out. And we're looking at purchasing some smaller track skid loaders with some blades on it that'll actually be grade controlled with a model and hoping to reduce the number of people it's gonna to take to get that surface ready for concrete. So it'd, it'd go from four to five people down to maybe two or something like that. So I see that being uh, hopefully some efficiencies and getting more done with less people. Sean, what are your perspectives around technology in the workforce? So I think it changes uh, the person that we're looking for. You're gonna have more specialized you know, technicians and and operators, as technology becomes more and more advanced, you're gonna have to have somebody that understands that technology and be able to build off of that. I'd also say too, just kind of echoing the comments of less people, right? And more specialized in those certain areas, I think is really what we're gonna see. The technician of tomorrow doesn't necessarily look like the technician from today. Excellent answer from both of you so far. Jim, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, I, I think, you know, our contractors, I think to the point of doing more with less people is, is certainly the, the direction the industry is going. We're also using technology as a way to recruit new people into the industry. We have a truck down at the end of the mall, Be Pro, Be Proud, where we're bringing it to schools across the country and exposing you know, the next generation of construction workers to the technology used in the industry. That's through crane, uh, crane simulators, uh, excavator simulators. 
you know, today's gaming generation, uh, I think the industry, you know, is, has got a lot to recruit those individuals into the industry. There's a lot more technology. It's not as dirty as an industry as it may have been years ago. So we're using it to our benefit to recruit new people to the industry. Well, Jim, I love that you answered in the context of, you know, what your organization is doing, because the next question is, hey, what role could the federal government and Congress play in attracting workers to the industry and providing tools for a skilled workforce. And Jim, you're actually going to lead this one off for us as well. Great. So, you know, it's not often we look to the federal government to help us out in, you know, the private sector. But I think this is one area where we've devoted a lot more time and resources to asking the federal government, you know, is referenced earlier that we have, uh, you know, billions of dollars coming online through the recent infrastructure uh, uh, initiatives, whether that's semiconductor or, um, you know, the broader infrastructure or even the clean and green energy. Um, unfortunately, our federal government spends about $120 billion a year in U.S. education policy, and only about 20% of that goes to career and workforce education. So, you know, to say it a different way, you know, 20 cents of every dollar that the federal government spends on education goes to career and workforce education. We call it the higher education bias, uh, AGC. We recognize we'll never be on par 50-50, but we need as a country to stop uh, spending so much money sending kids to four-year colleges that they may never even uh, work in that field of study. And we need to devote more federal resources to industries like construction where there's higher ROIs, where it's more likely that a graduate from a CTE program will uh, actually work in that field of study. So we're working with the different agencies, the Department of Labor, the Department of Education, and obviously Congress controls those budgets. So if we can highlight the work that our, our contractors are doing, if we can promote the need for new workers, I, I think we can go a long ways. Uh, we need to work with the, you know, the appropriators in Congress to fund those workforce programs like the Perkins CTE program is probably the best place the federal government could spend money. So collaboration with government and Congress specifically was an ongoing theme in these panel discussions. And there's more to say on this topic in just a second. But right there, Jim referenced the Perkins CTE Act. So I'm going to tell you a bit about what that is. CTE stands for Career and Technical Education. And so the Carl D. Perkins CTE Act, as defined by ImmigrationForum.org, is the primary federal funding source for high school, college, and university CTE programs that are critical for preparing youth and adults, including immigrants, for jobs in local and regional economies. And this was just one of the areas that came up in conversation. We later went on to discuss the importance of opening up financial aid to pull people out of poverty, the importance of immigration reform, all of this relating to how we get more people into the workforce to fill these open jobs. Another topic that came up quite a bit in these panels when it came to collaboration with Congress was the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the IIJA. Why is this topic so important right now? Well, to give you a quick summary, and the source for this one comes from the Government Finance Officers Association, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, also known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, was signed into law by President Biden on November 15th, 2021. The law authorizes $1.2 trillion for transportation and infrastructure spending, with $550 billion of that figure, roughly half of it, going toward new investments and programs. Funding from the IIJA is expansive in reach, addressing energy and power infrastructure, access to broadband internet, water infrastructure, and more. To tell us more about how the Association of Equipment Manufacturers is involved and wrap our policy portion of this episode, I need to get introduced to our next guest, who is very engaged with this at a federal level. All right, we are back 
for another session. We are joined by Kate Foxwood, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Welcome, Kate. Thank you very much. And I can't think of a, a better venue for discussing federal policy and its impact on the construction industry than the National Mall. Can you? No, and when you talk about using a megaphone to tell Congress what you need them to do. This is literally one of the largest megaphones I've ever had. <laughs> Quite frankly, more of a megaphone. We have a full PA system yeah. set up with a stage. Yes. So, well, this uh, let, let's take advantage of the megaphone that you have right now. We'll, we'll just dive right in, Kate. So the first question I have is, hey, it, it, it's obvious that AEM is busy at work here in the Capitol. Can you give us a rundown of some of the things you are hoping to accomplish in the 118th Congress? Well, I think top of mind, honestly, has to do with infrastructure implementation and taking the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that we helped pass um, as along with a number of other I entities in the Washington, D.C. area and nationally and ensuring that it's implemented efficiently, frankly, so that the story of infrastructure investment continues to be a positive one. And the general public just starts to understand the benefits that are going to be delivered for this historic bill. So next question's a long one, right? And all the pieces of equipment here will be used in some way, shape, or form for projects funded by the infrastructure bill that passed almost two years ago. You know, can you talk about your involvement in shaping and supporting the bill? How are your members being utilized in the implementation of the IIJA? Well, they're the, they're the ones that are building the equipment that's building the roads and the bridges, um, that's providing the iron that's actually making these projects come to life. And again, in a way that is an efficient use of taxpayer dollars and delivering it on time uh, and safely. So last question I've got for you, there's an appetite for research and development tax credits on the Hill. So what do your members think about this? How will it help to continue innovation? So I'll take off the infrastructure hat and put the manufacturing hat on. Okay. We, we kind of dovetail. We do policy. We kind of come at it from many, many different angles. We talk about agriculture policy. We talk about infrastructure investment policy. We talk about manufacturing policy as well. And that's really something that impacts um, the bread and butter, the day-to-day -day work of our equipment manufacturers. So when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed in 2017, which is an immensely helpful bill, for our members. One of the things that was not helpful was they did away with an R&D expensing tax credit that allowed our members to benefit, invest in research and development, R&D, in the long term, and then take immediate immediate tax credit for that. Um, and it, talking millions of dollars, depending on the story, depending on who you talk to. You've got some companies that you know could save millions of dollars and put that money back into R&D, whether it's in workforce for that or things of that nature, to develop the new technologies that you're seeing today. So we're working with members of Congress in real time this year to hopefully get that reinstated so that they can take advantage of that tax credit, whether here in Washington or we're also working in the state of Wisconsin to see if that can be realized at the state level. So it's a very critical piece, maybe not as sexy, but it's a really important piece for our industry. I appreciate you taking us through all of these areas today. Are there any final thoughts or final calls to action you'd like to, to leave the folks with today before we wrap up? I think just we're here to celebrate uh, equipment. We're here to celebrate construction. We're here to celebrate infrastructure. It being infrastructure week, this is an awesome time to continue to um, boast and, and be excited about the investments that the infrastructure bill have made over the last couple of years and will continue to make. Kate, thanks so much for jumping on stage. Thank you. We'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by ePlan. 
Now, I've known about these folks for years. ePlan provides software and service solutions in the fields of electrical engineering, automation, and mechatronics engineering. But I just got to know them a whole lot better when I featured their international solutions architect, Sean Mulheron, on episode 132. We talked about all things apprenticeships, travel, and data-driven panel design, and I'm gonna focus on that last one for a second. ePlan develops one of the world's leading design software solutions for machine, plant, and panel builders. So if you wanna start designing your panels for troubleshooting and ease of use so that your control panels are easy to navigate years after the panel is built, you need to check them out. Go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash ePlan or hear all about it from Sean in episode 132. And now, back to today's episode. Okay, so from the reforms needed to help fill those workforce gaps to the infrastructure bill to R&D tax credits, we've talked about that on the show before, but we kind of snuck that one in there at the end. We've covered a lot on the policy front. Now we're going to talk about the technology in these next few sessions. And this next one is about how tech relates to uptime, something everyone listening to this podcast should be familiar with. Our next guests, I think, do a great job of painting a picture of the challenges facing the construction industry and how new technology is helping them solve those challenges. We've got Brian Dietz, a co-owner of Bob Dietz & Sons, which is an excavator that's now part of John Deere, as well as Jason Ansberger, who is the director of Job Site Solutions at Komatsu. So the title of this session is Maximizing Uptime, but let's be honest, it's really about customer needs and being productive on the job site. So Brian, I'm going to start with you as someone from that can share this from a contractor perspective. What are some of your challenges on the job site that technology has helped you and your company overcome as of late? There's so many. I think the first thing is uh, labor shortages. Uh, everybody is struggling to retain employees right now, to draw new and younger employees in, and we have a lot of older uh, seasoned operators that are leaving the workforce. So some of the technology through GPS and machine control has enabled us to take on tasks with younger, less experienced employees, put them in difficult situations, and see them attain the same results that those older guys uh, were able to do. So that's been huge for us. Across the industry, I think that we struggle with delays on projects. A lot of times it's getting surveyors out to restake a project. GPS eliminates the need for the surveyors to come out. Once you establish control, once you put pins around your site that are surveyed in, we can shoot those in with, our, with a basin rover, a GPS satellite enabled link. That data connects to our machines. So you essentially you have a satellite putting data on a monitor in front of your operator that tells him X, Y, and Z. It gives him his his location and the elevation. That's an incredible step for construction in SiteWorks. Uh, It gives the operator everything that he needs, all the information to be confident that he's in the right location, he's digging to the right depth. It cuts down on so many things, just wasting material, grading a pad out at the wrong elevation, coming back and having to rework that entire site because you were off or because a stake was wrong. You're not, you have projects that are completely stakeless, no stakes on the site. That's unheard of. Years ago, everything, you would wait for the surveyor to come out, he'd put a stake, you had to barricade and protect that stake. It was the most important thing. It would get run over, sometimes two weeks for the surveyor to come back and put that stake in. It's your benchmark, it's your lifeline to to knowing you're in the right spot. So some of this technology is just completely taking all that delay and time and frustration out of uh, our industry. 
Yeah, you touched on a lot of topics there from preventing project delays to getting new people into the industry, hires. Jason, I'm interested to get your perspective as someone that's making and supplying the equipment on this topic as well. Yeah, just to follow off or piggyback off of Brian there, uh, what I find so neat is when you go out to a job site, traditionally you would go uh, see the foreman or the superintendent, you'd get the rolled up plans out of the back of the pickup truck, put them out on the hood and try to you know envision where things are at. And now, more often than not, you're kind of seeing a, a tablet or an iPad or something where everyone's looking at the latest and greatest de- details and status of the job site. So it's not those paper plans from a month ago. Uh, just like the operator inside the GPS-equipped machinery, the site superintendent, the foreman, the project managers, now they're all running off the latest and greatest uh, data for that job site. But from the OEM side, from an equipment manufacturer, uh, it's awesome to hear these uh, use cases, these uh, benefits for the customer. And again, it's not just for the operator, it's not just for the uh, GPS or the machine control perspective, but also from the equipment manager perspective, right? Making sure that those assets are getting highly utilized, um, not just on that job site, but also across the operations. So as you invest in an asset, a customer, you know, these are several hundred thousand dollar pieces of equipment, um, making sure that it's either being utilized on that job or maybe moving it elsewhere that it needs to be so that you're getting the return. And I think today with all these new assets that you see from the manufacturers across uh, the spectrum here on the National Mall, most of them are connected to the cloud in some fashion so that it is easy to get data off of them. It is easy to know where they're at, whether it's the health, the utilization, uh, location, all that good stuff so that customers truly are empowered to tighten their operations and make those good decisions that they need to. And if I could jump in on that one more time, you know, the downtime, when a, when a machine goes down, something goes wrong, something breaks, he touched on the health of the machine. It's so important that you can get that machine up and going in the shortest amount of time. What John Deere has given us is the, through JD Link, uh, our operators, not only do you get on the display a warning, whatever high temperature, whatever is going wrong there, but also they can remote into that machine, they can run diagnostics on it, I will get an email or your fleet manager will get an email immediately stating what's going wrong with that machine. The techs back at the support center, they can look at what, what that machine needs. That means that when the service truck comes out, it has the parts needed to fix it and it's done right the first time. And that, that has shortened the downtime. That has been a tremendous help for us. Okay, so that last segment had about as many parallels between manufacturing and construction as you could get. Here are just some of the ones I captured, and I know that's not even close to all of them. One, giving an operator the certainty they need to know they're digging in the right spot, the right depth, not wasting material, pulling equipment data from the cloud, getting texts to reduce equipment downtime. I mean, where I'm at in the manufacturing industry, I'm not typically thinking about stakes and stakeless projects, but I certainly see the parallels between manufacturing and construction in this case. Honestly, for me, what stuck out the most was when Jason described going to a job site, laying out the plans on a pickup truck, and now that switched to being real-time info on a tablet. We're going to keep marching on exploring technology and how it impacts construction, but this time the focus is on how technology impacts safety, like safety on a job site. Next up, in order, we have three guests, Marianne Graves with John Deere, Todd Raker with Develon, and Stacey Teschner of the American Transportation Safety Services Association. I have one question that each of them is going to get a chance to answer. 
So let's uh, let's move the topic to technology. And, and Marianne, since you were already prefacing this for us, we'll we'll lead off with you again. Awesome. Um, will advancements in transportation technology be beneficial to safety in the years to come? And can you give some examples? Yeah, no doubt. So again, I'm going to speak from Deere's perspective and on equipment. So I mentioned we are laser focused on what are the challenges our customers have. We know it's safety. We you know they want to send their people home in the same condition they brought them to work every day, right? And um, they also have a lack of skilled labor in, in the marketplace. We all, we all know that, so talking about education. So some of the technologies we're delivering both make inexperienced operators more proficient, but they make them safer. So we're looking at automation solutions, uh, we're looking at cameras, we're looking at sensors. So again, like I mentioned earlier, we're making our operators more aware of what's around them, but we're also warning the people around the machine too, right? So let's keep them out of harm's way. Let's make our operators and our customers productive, but let's send everybody home safe. So that's really what Deere's focused on. So I'm going to make a pun here, but it's like a two-way street, right? It's like operators the well and the people well around played. there as yes. well. Yeah. So um, I'll try to keep the puns to a minimum today, but no promises. Next up, Todd, same question for you. You know, you, you talked a little bit on, on some of the things within uh, the vehicles going through construction zones. And, you know, you, you hear about the, the new innovations with automotive. And if there's sensors on a job site that actually could slow that car down almost automatically. I mean, those are some future technologies that I think, you know, we, we maybe talk about or dream about. But in, in reality, they're not probably too far away from actually happening. Yeah, these technologies are no doubt accelerating and often coming quicker than we're expecting. You know, on the topic of transportation technology impacting safety, we're continuing down the line with this. Stacy, same question for you. Sure. Well, right along that line, even today there are, you think about what makes a car stop most frequently, it's a red light. So some of the sensors that we're talking about, if a car's coming in hot into a work zone, coming in too fast, there are sensors now that will actually take those temporary traffic signals, turn them red, so it stops all the traffic before it gets there. Now, I know that's maybe not as technology sexy as some of the other things that are going out there, but the fact is, uh, we have to work with what we have right now, and then we can move on to the next, the next levels of technology. Yeah, and, and it doesn't always necessarily need to be like the latest, greatest, cutting-edge technology, right? Sometimes pragmatism is the perfect answer to that. And I will double down on what I said right there at the end. I love a good technology-centric answer that focuses on the basics. So whether you're talking about safety on a roadside, job site, or in a factory, don't hesitate to leverage the simple solutions. I look forward to seeing how quickly technology accelerates things on the safety front in both of these industries. We've got one more final thought on technology that I want to leave you with, and this last clip is meant to drive home who that technology is for. Let's hear from Pete Large, Senior Vice President, Buildings and Infrastructure at Trimble. I also think one of the other things that's enabled uh, technology to positively impact the industry and society is the attitude of the stakeholders in the industry towards technology. Uh, you know, the adoption of technology from the, from the asset owner to the contractor, um, you know, I think that that's an important uh, element of the use of technology as well. In general, uh, those contractors that are using great control technology on the machine are more competitive. They're more predictable for their clients. They get the job done first time right. 
uh, more productive. They've, a lot of them have got a lot of backlog, so they're getting more work done. But also it makes them more competitive in the labor market, right? Everybody uh, is struggling right now with getting the operators they need. There's a lot of people retiring from the industry. And I know a number of customers who will tell you that part of the reason for using technology is also to attract uh, a new generation of workers in the workforce mm -hmm. that aren't going to come near a machine if it doesn't have some technology on it. So I think it helps them be more competitive in the labor market as well. I like how you ended that, Pete, with, hey, it makes people more competitive, right? Like, say that directly. Like, it is, it will allow construction folks to be more competitive in their business. My next question is around digital control systems. So how have digital control systems enabled benefits to productivity and performance? And maybe give some examples. You know, the more we can digital enable, digitally enable what's happening on the machine, the more we can get the right data to the machine, make sure it's doing the right thing, but we can gather a lot of information about what is actually happening on the site so the contractor can understand how am I doing against my, my, my bid, my schedule, my, my, my plan. Um, and so I, you know, I think that the, the, the enables the digital workflow that really is um, so important for the industry to become more efficient, more productive, and more sustainable. Maybe we should come back to that aspect as well. Funny you should mention sustainability, Pete, because that's exactly what we're going to talk about next. But hey, first, I just got to say, I like how the contractor and the people on site were very much the center of that last answer. In a very short while, we'll hear from Brian Beeler, the CEO of BOMAG Americas. But first, let's hear about sustainability from two different companies that have quite a different history. One is Caterpillar. You know them, one of the most established players in construction equipment. Matt Smith is going to kick us off by defining sustainability and Caterpillar's initiatives in this area. But then Steve Flaherty, CEO of Nicotech, is going to share a bit about what it's like being a new company in the construction industry. Matt, how would you and Caterpillar define sustainability? And what are some of the things you're doing and showing here that help tell that story? Yeah, it's a definitely a big question. And um, I think from a perspective, sustainability is in, entrenched in what we do at Caterpillar. It's a big part of what we do and how we do things. Um, our hope is that our customers see how we do that to help drive infrastructure, drive shelter, clean water transportation, um, as well as uh, reliable energy. Um, it's one of our core five goals, our values and actions. Sustainability stands on its own. Also to add to that, recently we launched our sustainability report. And in there we have five or seven critical goals built going out to 2030. And within that, five of those are, are built around um, environmental objectives. So we're pretty focused on it. And one of the other things that I will add, I'll speak specifically to, is product emissions. Um, and if you go over to our booth, just over to the right, um, you've got our new 301.9 battery electric machine. It's one of four prototype products that we have coming. You'll actually see that one in market um, early next year. We've got our 966 XE, which the major message around that is fuel efficiency. So we're also supporting sustainability. And also very excited, we have over in the, under the tent, we've got a remand engine. So taking the core down to its bare bones and rebuilding that and putting it back in the market just like new. So when you asked about sustainability, we're doing that through actions and the products we're bringing to market. Steve, I'm just getting to know your company. You're newer to the game here, but I'd really like to get your perspectives on this too. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what your organization is doing around sustainability? Sure. Yeah. So uh, Nico um, is, a, is a startup in this industry, so you don't see too many of those in the, the construction industry. Um, it's a big barrier to break into, but um, Neo... Uh, is innovative, so eco is eco-friendly. So literally, it's innovative 
sustainable solutions is what we've been looking at. So we define sustainability as being better than we were yesterday without negatively impacting tomorrow. So it's not something that you can just bite off and you know flip a switch on. It's, it's something that's going to take some time um, to achieve. Uh, and you're doing it little bit by little bit. So we're looking at it from a perspective of materials, equipment, and processes. So how do we utilize more sustainable materials? How do we have more environmentally friendly equipment? And then we're in the world of data and technology and innovation. And so if we can re- um, get the processes better uh, so that they're more efficient, so that we can apply autonomy and advanced technology and then bring that data back and be able to make the decisions that we need to more retroactive um, with data in mind, it makes the world a more sustainable place. I do have to ask a follow-up question to this because you said, hey, it's not common to see startups in the construction space. Do you think this is going to change? And honestly, if anyone wants to add their perspectives to this as well, because I have my own thoughts on it, but I'd love to hear from yourself as as someone that's with a startup. Do you think we're going to see a new wave of this? Yeah, well, I mean, so we're we're by my by no means the only startup in the construction space. So um, it's just not the the industry. The you know hard hardware or hard uh, equipment is hard, right? So the the sexiness is over on the startups. All the venture capital and everything's flowing to the software guys that can scale out and be you know global overnight type thing. Um, so this industry, you know, it is hard. Um, it's also seen as a legacy industry. You know, it's it's core to what we do, um, not only in this country, but globally. So, you know, how do you challenge that and how do you take it on? Um, it's a lot of late nights and it's a lot of hard work. So I think we're seeing more people enter it um, as technology evolves. All the framework is there. Um, and we're seeing the, the, the big companies embrace startups and, and partner with them, you know, to help them give the leg up, um, you know, so and help that innovation come within, uh, but then also be doing it themselves, you know, as, as large corporate partners. Yeah, and I think everyone here is learning that there's a lot of opportunity for this industry. And the more opportunity that's there, that's the opportunity for more companies to come in, even if it is a legacy industry. That's where the challenges and problems are. And uh, that's where people have an opportunity to solve them through, through new business ventures. So really cool to hear what you're doing at your company. The last question is a big catch-all. We're going to debunk some myths, right? I think some people look at construction as maybe not innovative they look at it as hey this isn't a this industry isn't focused on sustainability so i'd love to hear your thoughts on how do we debunk that brian if you could kick us off with that sure well obviously events like this where the people can come out and take a look at the machinery and talk to us about how the machines are built and designed and the technology that are in the machines but you know we, we've all said and heard it multiple times before right uh uh, the construction industry isn't what it was before. It's not a dirty business. Our manufacturing facilities are all state-of-the-art. Uh, we're, we're using uh, advanced engineering and computers uh, to build the machines, to fix the machines, to operate the machines. Uh, it's, it's much cleaner than what it was. It's much safer than what it was. And then promoting uh, to the industry the sustainability of it, even, even in you know, our business, the recycling uh, of products and, and, and the recycling of asphalt, for instance, letting, letting the youth know today, you know, the, one of the most recycled products in the world is asphalt. So that gets them interested and gets them excited and, and, and leads them down that path. Hey, just so you know, we are going to talk about asphalt again at the very end of this conversation. In fact, Brian's answer right there is a nice segue into the final sprint of this compilation. We're going to discuss some themes that we don't always cover on this show, like damage prevention, 
aggregates, asphalt. I'm sure these are very familiar to our construction audience that's out there today, but for the manufacturers out there, this is probably new territory. Our first topic, however, is going to be alternative power sources. In manufacturing, we talk about making construction equipment and vehicles with alternative fuel. As we talk to the equipment builders in this case, I think they provide a nice perspective on what users in the construction space are thinking about right now. Ray Gallant of Volvo Construction Equipment is going to share some definition around alternative power, while Ilmars Nartish, Vice President of Manitou, North America, will talk about some of the current developments in this space. Yeah, so first of all, uh, when we talk about alternative powered equipment, there's a lot of different things or technologies that that can mean. It can mean, as you said, battery electric, it can mean hydrogen, it can even mean connecting a machine directly to the grid and running it off an umbilical or a wire as an alternative, or even alternative fuels like renewable diesels or biodiesels and things like that. So there's a lot of different options out there that we can get. But what's really exciting in driving this, besides the environmental and social uh, needs driving it, is that these machines can work in different applications where traditional diesel couldn't. Because you have no emissions in the machines, for instance, you can work indoors, you can work around sensitive areas. Because you have no noise, it's a much safer, more comfortable job environment. And certain uh, applications we can do with these machines that have never been open to a diesel machine. So that's one of the really exciting things for me is to see where these machines are going to be used in the future. Yeah, so I'm hearing that there's more versatility, if you will, in the applications, where you can use them, etc. And Ilmars, if you can close us out on this, then I've got another question for you after this. Well, thank you. I'll, I would probably add one of the most concerns for everybody is, you know, the price of the ownership of the battery-powered equipment. Let me tell you, I mean, when we talk about battery-powered equipment, we always talk about considering a high cost of ownership or high cost of acquisition, although it is contrary because today if you compare the battery-powered equipment versus the diesel-powered equipment, I mean, it, running costs are much lower. And, and especially if we talk about a, a, a lead-acid battery versus lithium battery. So therefore, there is also an advantage in that end. So that's why it is very vital to discover that how much of the battery power is really required in regards of the operation and operation uh, uptime. Um, with Manitou, we are discovering all the different alternatives, let it be the lithium or let it be the lead-acid battery-powered, because with the types of the machines we propose, uh, the, the demand of the power, the demand of the working hour is different compared to uh, maybe uh, uh, one between one and another. So that's why it's critical as well to, to probably initiate the fact that there is a different technologies out there, how do we uh, uh, approach the battery-powered equipment. Well, it's fitting that you mentioned that there are different technologies out there because there are different forms of alternative power, right? And I know your company has battery electric equipment, and you also have a prototype for machine powered by hydrogen now. So I'm, I'm curious, what are, what are the advantages to each? Can you talk about why one may work better in one scenario and another in a different situation? Well, ultimately, it's not a question probably of the environment, but ultimately it is a question of... Uh, which direction we would like to go, because ultimately we might understand that the battery-powered, pure battery-powered equipment might not be sustainable in the long run. So therefore, most of us, and when I say us, that means manufacturers and industry, are in search of what is the sustainable energy uh, going forward. 
that being said, uh, we have invested and we will be continuing investing in, uh, in hydrogen and hydrogen powered equipment. And today we have launched, as you rightfully said, we have launched a prototype which, which we plan to go public probably by 2026, 2027. Uh, with a focus on hydrogen. Today it is with a fuel cell, but at the same time we also are investigating and in investing into the internal combustion hydrogen powered equipment as well. Every one of those types of the solutions might have a different requirements also from the infrastructure when it comes to the job site. So that's why we need to be also very clear and very consistent with the message when we are considering one or the other source of powers. So as Ilmar suggested, we'll need to keep paying attention to alternative power to see what direction things evolve. Next up, we're going to talk about damage prevention. Jake Jeffords with Vermeer Corporation is going to talk about ground engaging and damage prevention. A first for these topics on Manufacturing Happy Hour. If you're unfamiliar with this, this is what those call before you dig ads are all about. Like call 811 before you dig so you don't run into buried utilities. This next clip is a bit of a how the sausage gets made segment. Jake's going to tell us how companies like Vermeer are reducing or essentially eliminating the damages that might take place on a job site. Probably about 20 years ago, vacuum excavation really started uh, hitting the streets, but it was more for mud management. Um, directional drills would be on this nice lawn like you'd see in front of us, and there'd be mud out in the pit because of the directional drill would, would produce that. Um, so a vac really started to manage that mud. But over the years, when we added high-pressure water, uh, we were able to actually find and, and engage the ground, but it's not a, a an aggressive engagement where you could damage utilities. So the end of that nozzle will actually push out a rotary, a, a circle uh, type of form, and it will not damage the utility, but it will cut roots. It will engage the ground, and then we'll remove that mud to where we can see the utility. But the mapping is super important right now. How can we grab that information and help future excavators, future stakeholders, everyone that's in that area and in that arena be able to really make it easy for them to not have damages and go home safe at the end of the day. So there's a combination of technologies at play here. Jake talked about vacuum excavation, which I learned is called a soft dig or a non-mechanical dig, using a blast of air or water that wouldn't result in you cutting through a utility the same way a mechanical method might. That combined with GIS mapping, GIS's geographic information system, you have the information as to where those utilities are buried. Cool stuff. Next up, we have Jim McAvoy, president and CEO of Workin America, who's going to talk about aggregates, another new topic for some of our regular listeners, but I think it's important to include this conversation here at the end as we circle back to some of the episode's earlier and most important themes. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act is going to come up again here, and Jim is going to share how he feels the IIJA and the characteristics of this bill are impacting the construction industry. You know, when we look at the aggregates industry, there's um, uh, obviously it's a tremendous contributor, you know, 38,000 tons per lane mile of road, road things kind of what we're in. We're also in this uh, uh, what we call production system process, right, from from fracturing a rock all the way down through entire several uh, production systems to get to the point where it ends up on a road, whether it's in concrete or asphalt. You know, our connectivity to those production systems is where we see an opportunity. And the opportunity for the industry is really to, you know, everything's getting digitized. There's all types of information coming off of machines. So the opportunity to take 
digital information, put it into some production system logic, and really, I think the answer to all the challenges we have rely in the ability of manufacturers to innovate and put technology in machines that make it really more efficient for the producers and consumers of aggregate to to get the work done that they need to get done. So we have a role, we're, we're partners, all the contractors, everybody that's associated with the industry. And that role is to really advance intuitive technology that allows things to really, you know, run on this smarter, safer, more sustainable route. What has passage of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act meant to you and your company and the aggregates producers you work with? Great question. I think all of us in our careers, I think, have have seen different levels of funding and different timing of funding initiatives from the federal government. So the fact that the IIJA is now, you know, it's, it's, it's in place, the money is there, the stability that it brings, I, I think, is probably critical. These are really high-cost capital assets, and I think uh, the aggregates industry, producers, uh, contractors, get, a, get an underpinning of confidence uh, that, that the projects that will be coming will be coming for a number of years, and the investment in new technology that they see they'll be able to utilize over time is probably the most specific uh, impact to our to our business. So we see a sense of, of confidence, which is important in our industry. And, you know, we look forward to this particular funding initiative and, and you know, advocate for longer term packages uh, coming out of the federal government all the time. I mean, the, the, the ups and downs of the one year renewals in funding can be a little challenging for everybody in the decision-making process. So we like to see this this uh, long-term view to uh, big funding and infrastructure. It, it benefits everybody because it really waterfalls through the entire industry. So from the standpoint that not only are uh, producers and suppliers confident in uh, upgrading um, uh, their their equipment and their technology, which directly benefits us, you, you have a tendency to look at a lot of challenges when you have this opportunity, when you have a sense of uh, confidence and security that the money's going to be there, you, you will invest. And I will say as, as manufacturers, you know, we're pushing the edge on technology because and, and R&D investment because we feel comfortable that that's there. So from that component, that's, that's just one thing that advances the industry. And I think you know, suppliers, producers look at the opportunity to do upgrades and, and integrate new technologies to make their operations more efficient. It's also caused us to take a look at a long-term problem, which has been jobs in our industry. Yeah. So the fact that there is a, there's a level of comfort and confidence that there's going to be funding in the system, people are paying a lot more attention to how do we promote the industry uh, how do we get young talent uh, attracted to the industry and uh, the opportunities, the good opportunities that exist in jobs in this industry space? Really good, high-paying jobs, and there's a lot of them, and we need to, you know, it's, it's just another uh, trickle-down effect to having good, secure funding over time. Those things are getting more attention, and it's a great benefit, again, to the, to the longevity 
the sustained funding and the confidence that that brings to our industry. Well, one of my takeaways from the conversation is if you are looking for a job in a field that is high paying and has stability, this is a great spot to be looking right now. Now, I seriously doubt that I'm the first person to come up with this, but I would say from rock to road is how I would summarize the scope of what the aggregates industry covers. You know, right there, Jim highlighted the importance of the stability that the IIJA brings to the construction space. And I will say stability of the industry and its jobs was a theme that came up a lot in our conversations, even the ones that didn't appear on this episode. Also, with that, we have officially made it to the last interview of this marathon of an episode. Our last topic is asphalt, but there's more to this topic than just the stuff that gets poured across the ground for servicing your parking lots and roads. You're about to hear from Esther McGorka with the National Asphalt Pavement Association, as well as Jamie Rausch, the president and general manager of Dynapack. I have heard that we have an absolute expert on asphalt recycling on this panel today. So our first question is going to Esther. Maybe I'm not alone in learning about asphalt's recyclability. You know, it's even more recyclable than cans and newspaper, from what I'm hearing. You're, you're nodding your head yes. So how in the world does asphalt pavement get recycled, and why would anyone do that? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. I think it's one of the things that every industry representative knows, but nobody in the general public or even our lawmakers really have any understanding of, which is that um, it is 100% recyclable. And by volume, it's actually recycled more than any other product in the United States. So what you do is basically when you're out on the road, if you have ever driven through a construction zone, you might have noticed there's like a little bit of rumbling as they uh, take up the, the structure. So asphalt is built into layers. It's built into structures. So they actually take off the top layer uh, through milling and then they take it back to the plant, warm it back up, put in a little bit more asphalt, a little bit more aggregate or binder uh, or the rock and heat it back up, take it back out to the road and lay it back down so that you can have a really smooth drive. Um, and the reason that you do it really is kind of threefold. One, uh, obviously you get to conserve some natural resources, right? So you get to reuse all of the products again. It's 100% reusable in that way. So it's actually one of the better things that you can do. Um, two, you get to restore a like new driving surface to the driving public, which is really fantastic because you know, you get to drive on a new road and all you have to do is replace the surface. And three, it's really cost effective. So you're actually able to kind of reuse everything you had again in a way that makes it much more sustainable. Um, so really smooth ride, better sustainability and better cost effectiveness. There's really no downside because the quality is still there. I mean, any answer that includes like a three bullet point benefit list sounds like an expert answer to me around asphalt recycling. So... Thank you, Esther, for kicking us off on such a strong foot. So we're talking about our goals for the industry and the future of the industry, and it's going to take innovations to get us there. So I think these are some very appropriate questions we have to wrap things up for our afternoon here on the Capitol Mall. First one is, with all this innovation, what does the job market look like, right? What types of people might want to explore careers in this industry? And for this one, we'll go down the line. We'll go to Esther and Jamie. Construction really is a fantastic industry to be in. We are one of the industries that is closest to pay parity between men and women. It's 95% uh, to the dollar for every woman that a woman makes to a man. 
compare that to the national average, it's 18 cents more per per uh, hour that a woman makes in the construction industry. So there is tremendous opportunity in that space and there's a lot of recruitment going on specifically for women, as you mentioned. Um, and so I think that that's there. I also think it's really good for people who want to have an active lifestyle, right? Uh, my husband mistakenly went to college and he shouldn't have, he should have gone to a trade school. He is a builder, he is somebody that loves those things. And so he should have kind of gone into the construction field. It's where he, he ended up falling out. Um, but there is so much opportunity here that you don't need a college degree to be successful. You can start at any level and build your way up. And there's so much diversity in terms of what your job can be, right? Like you can have a desk job like you know us, you can have a sales job, you can have an IT job, you can be a lawyer, uh, or you can be on the crew, you can be at the plant. Uh, there is so much opportunity out there and people really only think of the flagger when they're thinking about uh, road work or construction. And so getting people to see that breadth and scope and the scale that is available to them, I think is really a tremendous opportunity. Um, so I'll stop there. Great answer, Jamie. What would you add to this? Well, I would say uh, channel your inner child. I mean, yesterday we were here for eight or nine hours and it was literally families and kids climbing all over the equipment, getting pictures, pretending to drive, testing the horns, all that stuff. Um, it's still that fun, right? It's even more fun today than it used to be, right? Um, we all have fantastic technology, our equipment state of the art, most of them driven by some joystick or some remote control, which really taps into this younger generation even today. I mean, we can use everybody. You know, if, if, if you're interested in construction, manufacturing, uh, I think it taps into every segment, really, to be honest with you. Have you guys like found anybody in the video game space that's really interested in kind of what you're what you're it, doing? It's interesting um, when when we go for like for example we we launched a a transfer vehicle some some about two years ago and so it's very uh, tech savvy. I mean uh, when you get up on top it's 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 not switches and buttons. I mean it's a joystick and usually you know the the operator is a younger person who really wants to do it who is familiar or has a gaming background. So yes, I mean, that, that is a very real scenario. Superb question there, Esther. Better than anything I've asked, really. I'm glad you jumped in on that. No, you, you, you all have provided some great insights across the board, and I appreciate the, the multi-direction discussion we have going on. Hey, let's hear it for our expert panel that has uh, led us through our last discussion of the afternoon. All right, all right, all right. That is it. We covered a lot, including right there at the end, some of the specifics as to why this industry can be so attractive to women and to younger generations. I hope these trends continue. I hope they transfer to other industries. I hope that the IIJA that our guest today had so much optimism around delivers on its promises. You know, one of the benefits that I have as, as the host of this show is I'm able to think back across all these conversations, across the 
two mornings of discussions that we had in D.C. and really think about what some of my core takeaways are. And I I hope you're doing that with what you've listened to today over the last hour. You know, first takeaway I would say is I'm going to start talking to more of my peers in the construction industry. They're having a lot of the same challenges that the manufacturing industry is having. They're leveraging a lot of the same technologies. I made the comment earlier, but hey, there's a lot of Venn diagram overlap between construction and manufacturing. And I'm sure you heard that today as well. But I'm going to take that a step further and say, hey, I got to start connecting with my peers over in that space because quite frankly, I don't think I'm doing enough of that personally. But this episode was a great intro into all of that. The other takeaway I'd say is there's a lot that's making this industry very attractive right now. You just heard it. Stability, funding, pay parity for women working outside or inside. If you're indoor cat, outdoor cat, whatever it is, there's a job for you in this space. And the fact that they need people right now, again, also all the technology that's there. So, hey, I'm going to do my best to spotlight more of this. I'd love to hear from you if you'd like to hear more about this adjacent industry on manufacturing happy hour about the construction industry. As we wrap up, I do want to make sure I'm pointing you to all the resources from this episode, though, because there was a ton. Again, the link to access everything in today's episode over at manufacturinghappyhour.com over at the show notes page. It's manufacturinghappyhour.com slash DC23. There you will have links to connect with everyone. And of course, make sure to visit AEM.org. I'll reiterate that this was just a sampling of our interviews. AEM, the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, We'll be releasing the full interviews over time, and I'll be doing my best to make sure that the show notes page stays as up to date as possible so that this is somewhat of a a living resource for you. With that, only a couple more things I want to say. Hey, thank you to our sponsor today, ePlan. Appreciate everything that ePlan is doing for this show. If you want to check them out, go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash ePlan. There you can learn more. Listen to our episode that we did with them not too long ago. I also want to say, I was just mentioning my takeaways If you want to share your takeaways as well, I would love to hear them do that over on LinkedIn, on social media, share a link to the episode again, one more time, a link to this episode is manufacturinghappyhour.com slash DC 23. Would love to hear what your biggest lesson learned from this episode was. Tag me if you can. And with that, hey, you made it. Congrats. What a big episode. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Thank you again to AEM for making this all possible. And with that, Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.